Well, as the uh, vicar of this church, may I extend uh, a very warm welcome to you all, especially those of you here for the first time, uh, maybe come as a guest or as a student, uh, just looking around at churches. You're very, very welcome indeed. Now, let me encourage you, if you will, to uh, look out this um, uh, sort of buff, yellow-coloured um, handout that has been slipped inside your service order. Um, Jody mentioned it earlier when she did our reading for us. It has on it um, the whole of one chapter of the, book, of, of the book of Revelation, one book in the Bible, and then an outline and a few quotes uh, which will help you to see where I'm going uh, in the next few moments if you like to follow those things. And I'm going to pray uh, what we've just been singing really, that God would speak to us. We believe that the Bible is God's word to us and I'm going to pray now that as we look at it, we'd understand it better. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're not only the God in heaven, but the Father who cares for us. And we pray that as we read the Bible, you would speak to us clearly, helping us to understand it better and to understand ourselves better than we perhaps ever have before. In Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, I have a dream. Now, I know it's been done before, but just stay with me if you will. Uh, I have a dream. A dream of a world without global terrorism, where men and women can wake up every morning in the knowledge that they are safe, whether working in New York City or jumping on the tube in London or going to school in Beslan, secure in the knowledge that someone has rid the world of terror and nuclear devices. I have a dream of a world free from poverty, where somebody has actually made poverty history, a world where it's no longer true that 30,000 people die every day from poverty-related causes, a world where wealth is evenly distributed and used only for the good of others. I have a dream of a world where our streets are safe, a world where all criminals have been removed and punished and every street and alleyway is without danger. I have a dream of a world free from earthquakes and tsunamis and typhoons. I have a dream of a world where there is no more sickness, where I'm no longer asked to pray with someone just diagnosed with cancer or asked to visit someone suffering from a devastating degenerative disease, all of which I'm regularly asked to do. I have a dream. I have a dream of a world where people are no longer lonely and relationships are not ruined by selfishness, where a huge, vibrant and throbbing city like Sheffield is a great place to be and not a nightmare of isolation and seclusion, where everyone looks out for the needs of others. I have a dream of a world where there is no more death, where the doctor nev never says, I've got some terrible news for you where I don't have to do what I did just a year ago, conduct the funeral of 21-year-old David Hopkinson after his tragic accident at work. I have a dream. I have a dream of a perfect, secure, beautiful, pure world of everlasting life, of a world free from death and mourning and crying and pain. Do you ever dream that dream? Joe's already told us that he does. Isn't that the world that we all want? I have a dream of a world just like that. But listen, 
My dream is not a hopeless pie-in-the-sky kind of dream. This isn't a vague fantasy castle-in-the-air pipe dream kind of dream. Human history is littered with those kind of dreams, broken dreams, hopeless, impossible-to-reach Hollywood kind of dreams. Many before me, of course, have dreamt of a better world. Some have worked all their lives for their utopia, even given their lives for their dream. Thomas More, Karl Marx, Martin Luther King, they and so many have dreamt the dream, but no one has made it a reality. And anyway, none of them have dreamed this kind of dream. No one could seriously believe that they could actually bring about a world completely without distress and disease and death. But that's my dream. Except it's not actually my dream at all. It's the dream of millions of Christians all around the world. Because it's what the Bible says is going to happen. You see, I have a dream, but the Bible shows us the reality. And if you're following on the handout, come with me then from dream to reality, the second point. And look at the world that the Bible points towards. It's here on the front page of the handout in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 4. See, here is a world where God, verse 4, will, do you see it? where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Here is the world that all Christians are waiting for. It's a completely new world, not just a patching up of this old, tired, tottering world that we live in, but a completely new world order where sickness and suffering have been eradicated, where evil has been exterminated, where death has been eliminated, a world where people will live forever. And because there's no death, there'll be no more mourning or crying. No longer the the heart-wrenching agony of losing a loved one. No more the feeling of the fragility and brevity of life. That's the world that God has promised and given us a glimpse of in this final book of the Bible. Uh, John, one of Jesus' first followers, wrote these words. He was given an amazing glimpse of this new world. And so he says in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. You see, a new heaven and a new earth. The reality of chapter 21 points to a place like this world. It is a new earth. A new earth. Continuity with this old earth. It's new, but it's also different because it's new. A new earth with all the old bits, all the bad bits taken out. In this new creation, verse 1, do you see, there is no longer any sea. The sea being a symbol of restlessness, of the surging tides of human conflict. This is a new creation with, with all traces of evil destroyed. And that's why this new earth can be a reality. For here, in this new earth, the Lord God Almighty has removed all evil from our world. Isn't that the world we all want? It's a new earth, so the Christian knows that eternity will be a material world. Please, rid yourself of all thoughts of disembodied spirits and airy, fairy, angelic beings, twanging harps and floating on clouds. Is that your picture of heaven? 
It isn't the Bible's. That is not the future that the Christians are waiting for. That is not the world that I'm dreaming of. No, the new creation will be very much like this one, just with all the bad bits taken out. It will be tangible and real and solid. I'm 46 years old, 47 this year. If you want to send me a birthday card, 3rd of December is my birthday. (laughs) And since I hit 40, I found myself often imagining what I'd do if I had my life all over again. I know you've hardly started your lives, you're not thinking that, but those of us in this kind of area, (laughs) don't you ever think that? I sometimes ask people, if you had your time again, what would you do differently? And you know, I actually meet people who say nothing. I wouldn't change a thing, they say. I'd do it all again, just the same. And I think that sounds singularly unimaginative. (laughs) If I had my life all over again, I'd love to have played tennis at Wimbledon, on centre court with an adoring British public cheering me on. Come on, Paul! Or a Formula One motor racing driver enjoying the thrill of the speed and the glamour of the lifestyle. Or I'd like to have learned to ski better so that I could do powder and bumps and jumps. Well, I can do those things, but, you know, anyway, you know where it goes. And if I had my time all over again, I'd have learned to play the piano and speak a foreign language and fly an aeroplane and jump out of an aeroplane. Not all at the same time, you understand. I'd like to swim with dolphins and scuba dive in the Great Barrier Reef and they're all parts of the world that I'd love to visit. Niagara Falls and the Grand Canyon and Ayers Rock and so many places all over the world. There are so many new experiences I'd love to have and maybe one day I will have some of them because despite the grey hair and the creaking joints, I'm not over the hill yet. But you see, as I dream of all the things I'd love to have done if I had my life over again, I'm saying I wish I had longer. The brevity of life is such a drag. And when you're the wrong side of 40, it hits you, doesn't it? But you see, when I look at the new creation, when I look at what's to come for the Christian, I know that I'll be able to do all those things and more, so much more. Because in the new creation, in the new earth, I'll have eternity to do them and a body that doesn't wear out. And it's a new earth, so it will be a material world An earth just like this one, with mountains and snow and skiing and waterfalls and tennis and dolphins and and what a place to be for eternity. Isn't it a great future to look forward to? Because now when the doctor says to me that he's got bad news and he says, I'm afraid, Mr Williams, you're just going to have to learn to live with it for the rest of your life, I know the day is coming when I can live without it in the new creation. And what a place it is. See, at the centre of this new earth is a city. Do you see it there in verse 2? It is called the New Jerusalem. And it is a huge city. Look at verse 16. The city... Yes, over the page. Verse 16. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. Now, whether we're meant to take the shape and the measurements literally doesn't matter too much. The point is, it's enormous. 12,000 stadia, 1,400 miles square. That is one mighty city. And look on to the next verse, in verse 17. It is totally secure. He measured its walls, and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement, That's one solid wall, 65 metres thick. 
Do you get the feeling of security in this city? I'm pretty sure that I'm not alone, that I will never forget the events of 9-11. And I will never forget the words of a journalist on September the 12th, 2001. He wrote this. If New York is not safe, if the Pentagon is not safe, then quite simply it is not safe. And so many people have felt that about this world since then and before. I was living in London when the Twin Towers fell and uh, there was, uh, everybody was looking up after that for the next few days for aeroplanes that were going to crash into buildings. I was living in London during the terrorist attacks of 7-7 and people felt deeply insecure in London after those, both those events. But it doesn't need to be terrorism to feel that insecurity. Walking home late at night, who doesn't check over their shoulder to make sure that they are alone? That's why this is so reassuring, living in a city that has impenetrable walls and in a world where evil has been exterminated. This place is totally safe. Don't you long for a place like that? And it is remarkably beautiful. Look at verse 19. The foundations, now listen, this is the foundations. The foundations of the city... The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysopase, the eleventh jacinth and the twelfth amethysts. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. Have you ever seen anything like that? This knocks the socks off the seven wonders of the world. It makes the great pyramid of Giza look small. It makes the hanging gardens of Babylon look bland. It puts the temple of Artemis in the shade. This city is beautiful beyond compare. You and I have never seen anything like it. And this city is... Not only beautiful, but it is vibrant and alive and cosmopolitan. Look at verse 24. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendour into it. And then verse 26. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. There's nothing dull about this place. The amount of times that people say to me, oh, I don't want to go to heaven, it's going to be so boring. It, it, they haven't read their Bibles. In this city, all the very best and greatest aspects of all the nations of the world are in one cosmopolitan city. And there'll also be this sense of great freedom. Look at verse 25. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. See, in this city, in this new earth, the gates are never shut because there's nothing to fear. There's no enemy. All the bad bits have been removed. Can you imagine never having a worry in the world? And can you imagine never feeling alone? Do you remember Freddie Mercury, lead singer with the rock band Queen? Uh, sorry again to those of you who are kind of into other groups, but you know, I'm this age, so the rest of you can stay with me. Anyway, for those of you who can't remember him, lead singer with Queen 
Before his death, he famously said this, you can have everything in the world and still be the loneliest man. And that is the most bitter type of loneliness. You know, no one will ever say that in the New Jerusalem. For it is not just a place, a building. It is a community of people. A place where there's no loneliness or isolation. In this city, people look out for each other. And in this city, they live in unhindered love and support forever. It will be a great place to be. But... What really makes this city, this new creation, such a magnificent place is back at the beginning of the chapter in verse 3. You see again, verse 3, we had these words read earlier. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Here's why this is such a great place to be. The one true living God is right at the heart and centre of this new world. That's why the new creation is so spectacularly good. In this place we will finally be in perfect relationship with our God. Nicola spoke when she spoke about the fact that she knew of God but she didn't know what it was to know him personally. Now she is beginning to understand that. But when she's finally in the new creation, she will know something about this personal relationship with him that she cannot know until then. It will be so spectacularly good. Knowing Jesus intimately, knowing the one for whom we were made, knowing the one in whom we find the very meaning of life itself. See, the reason that this is such a good place is that Jesus is at the very centre of this world. And that is how it should be. I've uh, just started to wear contact lenses again. I didn't put them in uh, this evening. uh, But uh, after wearing contact lenses years ago and then wearing glasses for a long time, I've uh, started to find the joy of daily disposable contact lenses. I wear them for a day and then I chuck them away. They only cost about a pound each, so I can do that. But you see, it didn't used to be like this. Again, I'm telling you about things that you don't know anything about. But stay with me, because it's a little history lesson in contact lenses. See, when I first started to wear contact lenses over 25 years ago, yes, I was old enough to do that, they were very expensive. One pair cost well over £100, and that was a lot of money 25 years ago. It's a lot of money now. It was even more money then. I'm sounding more and more like my dad. I can't believe it. (laughs) And so while I loved to wear contact lenses then, it sometimes wearing them caused me great distress. For example, first thing in the morning, in front of the bathroom mirror, when the lens would drop off my finger. Do you know that, those of you who've worn contact lenses? And uh, you see, the reason that would cause me great distress is because the contact lens is made to live in and survive in one environment, in the eye. And when it's not in the eye, it has to live in the pot, in the solution that the uh, optician has given you. And if it's not in the pot, in the solution, and not in the eye, when it goes out of the eye and out of the solution, it very quickly dries up and becomes brittle and breaks very quickly. Now, at first thing in the morning, when it's just popped off your finger and not gone in your eye and gone on the floor, you now know that your £100 worth of contact lenses only have a short time to live. And so there is a race against time, a race to save your contact lens. 
a race to save significant pounds. You dare not move in case you tread on it. You cannot see to recover your contact lens because you don't have it in your eye. And they always bounce and hide in the most obscure places. Why did they make them like that? And all this is before 7.30 in the morning. It is no way to start your day. You can see why I love daily disposable contact lenses. If they fall on the floor, it's only a quid and it doesn't matter. Now, I tell you all that because like contact lenses, we're all made for a particular environment, an environment in which we flourish. When we are outside of that environment, we become brittle and hard and we will soon die. We cannot flourish outside of that relationship, outside of that environment, and that environment is being in a relationship. We cannot cope without relationship. Do you know that? Of course you do. You know that's why you feel so lonely when you feel lonely and why it feels so bad. But this relationship that we all long for, this relationship that Freddie Mercury longed for, it's not just any old relationship. It is a relationship with Jesus Christ. We were made to live in that relationship and whether we realise it or not, all our attempts to find meaning in life and satisfaction in life are an attempt to find the meaning of life himself, Jesus Christ. See, Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and have it in its fullness, have it in abundance. Satisfaction and meaning is found in Jesus. When I find him, I find what life is all about. And when a community of people live with him at the heart and centre of life, they relate to one another as they should because he deals with pride and envy and bitterness and selfishness and jealousy and discord and hatred and everything impure and shameful and deceitful and those things are put away. And that is why this new creation is so wonderful because Jesus is at the heart and centre of it all. And no one is trying to promote themselves and put others down. Have you got a picture of the new creation? Isn't it the world we all want? Who doesn't want to live forever in a perfect world, an infinitely interesting world, a world where all our capacities and and abilities are used to their full potential, a world of beauty and of creativity and a world of peace and a world where we know the meaning of life himself. I meet people all the time who are thirsty for that world. Sometimes they don't even know they're thirsty for that world. They just know they have a thirst for something because this life doesn't deliver when they really look at themselves deep down. People are thirsty for this world and look what the living God says to people like that. Verse 6. Halfway through he says, To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the springs of the water of life. Jesus wants to quench your thirst. And you know, we all have a thirst for that world because God has set eternity in our hearts. We were made for this vibrant, living, eternal new creation, not this dying, decaying, tottering, tired world order that we now are in. We were made to be with Jesus and enjoy him and everything that he wants to give us forever. And that is why we're restless with this world and all its imperfections. That's why so many people have dreamt dreams of a better world. 
But no one in this world can give us the world we all want. As we come to the end of uh, the political party conference season, just think about all the promises and policies that have been made or promised to be made. And they all want to give us a better standard of living, a safer country, a greater quality of life. They're all trying to tackle crime and education and health and poverty and, and they can't do it. The very fabric of this world is such that these things will always be with us. I feel sorry for politicians. They are trying to make the world a better place and they're on a hiding to nothing. You and I can't change this world. Even if we could rid the world of global terrorism and global poverty and global warming and global recessions, it would still be a bad world because people would die and suffer. The new creation that we so want is not going to be realised through a political manifesto or a business plan or a popular uprising or a greener industrial revolution. Only God can bring about the world of Revelation chapter 21. Because to have it means wrapping up this world, the world as we know it now, and starting again. And that's what he says in verse 5. He says, behold, I'm making everything new. See, let me just underline this point before we move on. We can't do it. And we ought to have realised that by now. There have been so many false dawns. The great hope of 160 years ago was that the world was heading into a bright new future. Listen to Prince Albert opening the Great Crystal Palace exhibition of 1851. I put his quote on here if you want to look at it. He said this, it's printed on the handout. He said, nobody has paid any attention to our present, present era. We'll doubt for a moment that we are living at a period of most wonderful transition which moves rapidly to accomplish that great end to which indeed all history points the realisation of the unity of mankind. It's what Prince Albert was longing for. The, the realisation of the unity of mankind. 160 years ago, Prince Albert's words in 1851, and what happened 50 years later? World War I. A terrible war. The, world, the war to end all wars, we were told. But 20 years later, the Second World War began. And then Churchill said, look on the sheet, you'll see what he said. If we can stand up to Hitler, all Europe may be free and the life of the, of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. Well, they did rid Europe of Hitler and we thank God that they did. But the broad, sunlit uplands have been darkened again and again by the monsters that rule this world. There have been so many false dawns. So many people have had dreams of a brighter future but they have never been realised and they never will. And the message of Jesus is not about trying to make this world a better place. Have you got that? That is not possible. No, Jesus is going to make all things new. He is about guaranteeing a new creation. A completely new beginning. But you may be saying to me right now, and if you are, you'd be right to think it, how can I trust that Jesus can do that? Well, I'll tell you why. Because he's already shown that he can. You see, when Jesus walked planet Earth 2,000 years ago, he gave us glimpses of this new creation. Uh, no need to turn to it if you've got a Bible there's no need to turn to it but in Mark's Gospel chapters 4 and 5 we have what I've called as my third point a reality check listen to some of the astonishing things Jesus did at the end of chapter 4 of Mark's Gospel he was in a fishing boat with a storm raging with his followers convinced it was curtains 
And we read in chapter 44, verse 39, that Jesus stilled the storm with just a word, be still, he said. And at that point, Jesus showed us that he had power over nature and this whole world order. He had the power over this world. At the beginning of chapter 5, the very next uh, moment in in Mark's Gospel, Jesus encountered a man who was demon-possessed, a man that no one could help and no one could contain, a man who was a danger to others and a danger to himself. And then we read that Jesus delivered that man. And at the end of the incident, we see him sitting calm and in his right mind. And you see, that tells us that when Jesus came to planet Earth, he was able to banish evil. And then the next thing that happens in Mark's Gospel, Mark tells us about a woman who was ill. In her world, her condition would have meant she was a social outcast. She knew social isolation and extreme physical pain. There seemed to be no hope and no cure. We're told in verses 25 and 26 that no doctors, no medicine could heal her. She'd been to everyone. Nobody could help her. But Jesus changed everything. As he was walking past her one day, the woman touched out and, uh, reached out and touched his cloak and immediately she was healed. Jesus was able to stop suffering. And then later on, the next bit in the chapter tells us of a young girl who died. By the time Jesus reached the family home, the funeral, funeral had already begun. There were women outside wailing. This little girl had died and Jesus went through the, the, the funeral uh, through all the people in the funeral, he went into the little girl, where, uh, into the, the room where the little girl was laid out, and he took the little girl by the hand and he said, "Little girl, get up." And remarkably, she did. When Jesus came to this world, he showed us that he can get rid of death, and so end mourning and crying. Do you see the point? When Jesus came to planet Earth, nature was controlled, evil was banished, suffering was stopped, and in the presence of Jesus, death was defeated and mourning and crying ceased. It sounds like Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, doesn't it? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And so this is not just a pipe dream, not just a vague hope. Because when Jesus walked planet Earth, he was doing that sort of thing again and again and again and again. And so as Jesus walked around planet Earth, it's as if a curtain was pulled back and we were given a little glimpse into the new creation that he promises he can give us. A little sneak preview. Jesus did remarkable miracles to show us that this big miracle can be a reality. That's what Christians are waiting for. And so for the Christians, you see, the future is bright. A bright new world. That is until we come to the last verse of Revelation chapter 1 and verse 27. As we draw to a close now. Do you see what it says in that very last verse? Nothing impure will ever enter this new city, this new world. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Nothing impure will ever enter that new... Of course not. Or it would be ruined. It wouldn't be the new creation that we long for. Of course nothing impure can enter the new creation. So doesn't that leave you and me with a huge problem? We long for this world that we've been thinking about all evening, but if nothing impure ever enters it, then you and I don't stand a hope of being there. How can we, fourth point, live the dream? 
Who of us you see can stand up and say, I've never done anything wrong? Oh, I meet people who say that. I meet people who say, I've never told a lie. And I say, well, there's another one. (laughs) Well, I don't, but that's what I think. (laughs) Who can, with hand on heart, say, I've never done anything that is impure or shameful or deceitful or disgraceful or appalling or dirty? We know we've done those things. None of us can make that claim. And look, you don't have to be a Christian to believe that. The atheist Bertrand Russell admitted it is in our hearts that evil lies and it's from our hearts that it must be plucked out. I can't pluck out the evil out of my heart though, can you? The amount of times I've tried to turn over a new leaf, it doesn't work, does it? I've listened to another person who's not a Christian, Carl Jung, the psychologist. He said, it is becoming more and more obvious that it's not starvation, not microbes, not cancer, but man himself who is mankind's greatest danger. Spot on. So you and I have a problem. We don't even live up to our own standards, let alone this standard of purity. And worse of all, you and I have done the most terrible thing imaginable. We have, to a greater or lesser extent, turned our backs on the Lord Jesus Christ, the one for whom we were made. The one who gives us so many good things every day. We've ignored him and lived our life our own way. We're forgetful of him. Sometimes we just deliberately don't want to go his way. And so we are impure. The greatest impurity of all, ignoring Jesus. Do you see the problem? There's a glimpse of this glorious new world. And then we're told that no one impure can get in there. And we understand why. It wouldn't be a glorious new world. How do we get there? Well, Jesus didn't only come to show us a little glimpse of that world by doing these remarkable things. He came to do something else. He came to die on a cross. See, right through this passage, he is described as the Lamb. You see it there in that verse, verse 27, the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the sacrificial Lamb. He sacrificed himself. He sacrificed himself by dying on a cross. And as he sacrificed himself, he was taking the punishment that you and I deserve. There's a gravestone in the United States of America with the words inscribed on it, I want to stand where you're standing. Underneath those words on the gravestone, it tells the story of one incident during the American Civil War, as you know, a war that was fought between the Yankees and the Confederates. It tells of one occasion when a a bunch of Confederates had been caught and were lined up in a firing line about to be executed. And one of the Yankee marksmen, a 19-year-old, looked down the barrel of his gun and he recognised the man he was about to shoot. He threw his gun down and he marched over to his captain and he said to the captain, I can't shoot that man, I know him. And I know that he has a a wife and and two children, young children at home and I know that if I shoot him I not only end his life but I effectively lose theirs as well. And after a bit of discussion, the young 19-year-old Yankee was allowed to go over to the, the Confederate and he said to him, I want to stand where you're standing. And the Confederate took off his blindfold and he went free And the Yankee put on the blindfold and moments later he was shot dead. I want to stand where you're standing. Just a little glimpse, a little glimpse of what Jesus said when he died 2,000 years ago on a cross. Because he loves you. Because he loves you. You and I don't deserve this new creation. You and I deserve God's punishment. But Jesus says, I love you. I want to stand where you're standing. I'll take your place. 
And that's why Christians keep talking about the death of Jesus on a cross. That's why Christians have crosses all over their buildings. That's why the Lamb is at the centre of the new heavens and the new earth. Because he is the reason for there being a new creation to look forward to. Thanks so much for listening tonight. Do you know that that's what Christians believe? Do you know that this is what we're waiting for? Sometimes people say to me, I I don't want to become a Christian. I love life too much. I don't want Jesus to cramp my style. I want to live life to the full. I want to live life to the max. I'm young. I've got the whole of life ahead of me. Do you know how I think I'd like to reply to that? I think I'd like to say something like this. If you really love life that much, you will want a slice of this. Otherwise, I can't believe that you really love life that, that, that much at all because the best you can have is 70 or 80 years here on this damaged planet. I really love life. And I want to live forever in a place that is free from death and mourning and crying and pain with Jesus Christ, who is the very meaning of life itself. See, I have a dream. A dream that is going to be a reality. To you. Well, I'm ever so grateful for you listening and uh, for your coming, especially if you're here as a guest. And I can't... uh, but uh, endorse what Joe has already said more uh, than for you to come to Christianity Explored where you can check out these things. We don't expect you to believe this in one listening to one Christian preacher. Why don't you come along to Christianity Explored? It will cost you nothing. It could actually buy you eternity. Uh, So grab one of these from me. I'm going to stand at the door. Just say I'd like one and I'll give you one of those and uh, we'd love to see you a week on Tuesday. For now, we're going to uh, sing again.